Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Epcot Center is proud to present over the World Showcase Lagoon, Surprise in the Sky. Today, the resident stars of Disney MGM Studios celebrate 100 years of magic. We invite you to share a dream come true, as motion picture history is once again made right here at Disney MGM Studios. And welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 655. And together we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, and more. Here on the podcast, my weekly live video on Facebook, community videos, books, audio tour, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and find everything else at www.radio.com. This week, we're going to look at 10 things you never knew about Roy O. Disney, including personal and professional stories and the important yet overlooked legacy he left behind. I'll then have the answer to our Disney trivia question of the week and more updates at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. Walt Disney World is a tribute to the philosophy and the life of Walter Elias Disney and to the talents, the dedication, and the loyalty of the entire Disney organization that made Walt Disney's dream come true. May Walt Disney World bring joy and inspiration and new knowledge to all who come to this happy place. A magic kingdom where the young at heart of all ages can laugh and play and learn together. You don't know the story of Walt Disney World, and I think Walt Disney, until you know the story of Roy O. Disney. And as we continue to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, as we mentioned on our past, present, and future episode a few weeks back, I really feel that it's important to not just preserve and remember the Walt in Walt Disney World, but his older brother Roy as well. And today, being October 25th, the anniversary of the actual dedication of Walt Disney World by Roy Disney, with Mickey at his side, I think the timing is more appropriate than error. So this week, I want to look at 10 things you never knew about Roy O. Disney to not only bring attention to the man on a personal and professional level, but really his ongoing impact and legacy. And joining me is a man who, according to my notes, um, has been to Walt Disney World at least one time. He is author, podcaster, former Walt Disney World cast member, and all-around good guy, Connor Brown from WDW Opinion. 
Thanks for having me, Lou. And I think your note should say at least two times. I've been at least two times to Walt Disney World, but I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to talk about someone who I think is really sort of an unsung hero. I think he needs more credit than people give him, but I'm I'm excited to learn more about him as well because I know you're going to bring the fun facts. Well, and thank you. And hopefully I deliver on those fun facts, but you're right. And this is honestly a show that I've wanted to do a long time. And I wish I could say that it was completely deliberate, that I waited until the 50th, but I think it really is appropriate. And and I think I sort of made mention on that show of which you were a part that we know of Roy O. Disney, but I think a lot of people don't know about Roy Disney. And I think it is more oversight than intentional but it still is bothersome to me a little bit because we talked about keeping the walt in walt disney world i think it's important to keep the roy in it as well yeah and i think for a man who was so humble and you know wanted to accomplish not only his goals and the company goals but the goals that his younger brother walt had when you're humble like that, it, it makes sense that you kind of fly under the radar. But at the same time, I think true Disney fans and especially true Walt Disney World fans, we need to pay him the respect that he deserves because point blank, if Roy wasn't there, if Roy didn't do what he was able to do, Walt Disney World would not exist. Yeah. And I want to sort of talk a, a little and, and maybe a lot about of some of those things on both a personal and the business level, because I think there's a lot that people on a surface level, know about Roy, that he's the co-founder and partner of Walt Disney Productions and and co-owner of Walt Disney Company. And in those roles, he really was, you know, the man behind the curtain. He was the guy behind the scenes who really ensured that Walt's dreams came true by figuring out how to finance what not just he, but I think a lot of other people felt were fanciful projects by Walt. But he also, to your point, he kept Walt as the singular heroic face of the company that bore Walt's name and Walt Disney's alone. And I think, and, and I know this this might sound a little bit like hyperbole, but I, I really think Roy O, or O stands for Oliver, by the way, one of the most influential people in American business history, but one whose personal history is again, sometimes overlooked or really, I think, even ignored. And like to that point, you know, there's times that I've gone to the statue of Roy in the center of Town Square on Main Street, USA. And I've heard more than one guest than I care to acknowledge, take a photo by that statue and call him Walt. So, <laughs> and, and you can't fault, I, I don't fault anyone. I don't fault the guest because there is, other than that statue, in the parks, especially Walt Disney World, we really don't, or his window, you really don't see or or hear a lot about Roy anywhere. It, does he have a train named after him? He does. Spoiler alert. Oh, okay. getting that. oh sorry. <laughs> oh, no. But he does. I mean, and that's, and I think sometimes even those names on the train are not ones that are necessarily known by you know, the average everyday guest. I think there's so much, even on Main Street USA, that that people probably understand, oh, 
the windows play a significant role. Oh, it's someone important, but it's kind of a name only. It's it's not very few people, I think, know the backstories behind these individuals. And I think for Roy, for as much as he accomplished, it's important to know his backstory in the business realm, as well as in his personal life, too. And I think oftentimes you'll hear reference to Walt being the dreamer, Roy being the doer. But I almost think it's more that that Walt was the heart and Roy was the head. Roy was the mind behind not just everything that was happening you know, at Walt Disney World, but I think really with, with Walt Disney Productions at the time, because while Walt was remarkably creative and innovative, he lacked sort of the business acumen to run the business of the business. And what they were were really two complementary integral parts of one mind. You know, Walt was sort of that artistic right brain and Roy was the more critical, analytical, methodical left brain, which made them per- perfect partners. They Maybe they weren't always perfect brothers, but they definitely made them perfect partners. And at the same time, I think, you know, Walt tried several times to get a company up off the ground. And he was moderately successful at times. At other times, it was a catastrophic failure. But once he did partner with his brother and bring in, like you said, that sort of business acumen, sort of that uh, yin and yang kind of thing, someone to keep him grounded because while Walt was a great dreamer, Roy was able to take those dreams and make them a reality by pulling Walt in and knowing how to get those things done. And with that partnership, that's when Walt kind of started to take off. That's when the company started to finally click and find its grooves. And I agree 100%. And to try and actually make my 10 things list be somewhat of an actual list, number one, I want to go back to the early days of Roy. And it doesn't, you know, he was born on June 24th of 1893. And again, the the overall family story, you might know that that in 1911, they moved from uh, Marceline to Kansas City. And his father, Elias, Again, I think Walt got his business acumen from from his father, not always the most successful businessman. He did buy a newspaper delivery route while he was at the Kansas City Star. And we've heard the stories of Walt delivering newspapers uphill in the snow both ways before and after school. But it wasn't just Walt who was a delivery boy to hundreds of customers, but Roy was as well. And I think the, the point is that Early on, uh, even when they were kids, Roy always looked out, as older brothers are wont to and really should do, he always looked out for his brother, even his kids. Um, and even his kids, they were business partners, right? They, they delivered newspapers together. They they went on to be news butchers at, at, at the railroad um, when... Um, when 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 Walt wanted to um, uh, work when when Roy was working for Fred Harvey doing the newspaper, Walt actually had to put up a, a thirty dollar bond to make sure that that certain expenses were covered. Roy put that money up for him. Roy lost that money. Um, when Roy goes over after the war to become a bank teller in Kansas City, he hears about a, an opening from a coworker. He passes this tip on to Walt, who got his first art job, which was an apprenticeship at. Pesman Rubin, which was a, a commercial art studio. So Roy always looked out for Walt 
his entire life as they were kids. When, you know, obviously when things really started to take form in 1923, when Walt comes out to Hollywood to join his brother there and start the Disney Brothers Studios, it wasn't just that business partnership. Like, I really do think they were close and friends together. Like, they ordered kit houses, and in 1928, they built their houses next to each other in the Los Feliz neighborhood. And although, and I can relate to this, I'm six years older than my younger brother, and Roy was eight years older than Walt, but that relationship that they had seemed to be of both, you know, close friends and business partners, and I think to a certain degree, you know, somewhat of a surrogate father to to Walt as well. I think it goes beyond any kind of traditional brother relationship because I know plenty of people who they live down the street from their their brother or their sister or they still live in the same neighborhood as as their parents. I know plenty of people who go into business with their brother or their sister or go into the family business. But there's very few times where all of those things are occurring at the same time, where they're living next to each other, where they're vacationing together, where they're so close as brothers that they're also best friends in addition to being business partners. And they're not just some business partners running the local ice cream parlor. You know, They're running a pretty big company. So there's plenty of times where that relationship can come to a head, can get a little testy, and it does at times for sure. But I think deep down, that relationship of brothers and friends and Roy looking out for Walt, that's kind of why this relationship worked so well for so many years in all of those different facets. You know, and I can understand because I think you do have to have a special relationship with a sibling, with a parent to go into business with them together. After I graduated law school, I I clerked for a judge for a year And after that time, I was talking with a lot of my friends who were also clerks and and deciding what to do next. And I went to work in my father's firm. And I will never forget a friend of mine at the time said to me, you're going to go work with your dad? Like, how could you do that? And I looked at him and I said, how could you not? Like, why would you not? And I realized at that moment that I think you do have to have that type of you know, I keep calling it a special relationship, which I did with my dad, which I do with my brother. And I think as an extension that Walt and Roy must have had with each other, too. Yeah. You know, my dad's a lawyer and he has his own law firm, but he made it pretty clear that I was not going to be hired if I became a lawyer. So that's good that it worked like that for you, I think. But um, yeah, I think it is it is a special relationship. And when you can kind of explore that, um, it's pretty cool for sure. And, you know, second on my list, I, I just wrote that that things are not always as they seem. And as an extension of what we're just talking about, I think we, obviously all of us who have never met Walt or Roy Disney, have this perception of who they were, right? We, we know Walt as that kindly, loving, gentlemanly father figure on TV. And I think that that we might have this perception of, Walt that way, but Roy being the businessman, he is cold and he is calculating and it's all business. And sometimes things are not as they seem. And I and I've read a lot of a lot about the two of these. And from what I understand that what we saw on TV or what we sort of have from our general perception of Roy, who was not on TV a lot, if really at all, is that 
those those perceptions are not necessarily true. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but Walt, as many great leaders and businessmen are, you know, behind the scenes, you you know, you have to be what some might call a, a difficult boss, um, you know, very much a perfectionist and the importance of the quality of the end product sort of taking precedence over the feelings of the people that work for you. And we've heard stories about how even when he was starting to build Disneyland and was pulling, you know, both men and women from their jobs in animation, storyboarding, ink and paint and saying, you are going to do this. And Walt saying, I'm obviously paraphrasing, you know, and they'd say, well, Walt, I'm not a story guy. I I don't know how to build a theme park. And he says, no, what you are is a storyteller. You are a designer. You are an artist. And, And he was able to sort of get the most out of people like that. And I'm sure, you know, if we were able, and I've, and I've spoken to people who have worked for Walt that, yeah, there were times that he was difficult and some might even call maybe a little bit mean, and we would think almost those things of Roy, but then you hear stories to the opposite, that Roy had like this wonderful sense of humor and he had great interpersonal skills and actually had a lot of uh, charisma to him as well. And Frank Thomas um, said of War- Roy that you could put your arm around his shoulder, not necessarily with Walt. <laughs> you know, They were two <laughs> very different people when it came down to the business of business. When you're trying to be successful in business, I think you have to have a good dose of both of those things. You have to be at times a little bit ruthless for sure. And perfectionist, uh, a sort of perfectionist, absolutely. But you still have to be able to form great, meaningful relationships with your employees, with your partners, with your third parties outside of the company that you're hoping to do business with in the future because so much of business is relationship based and with you know Roy leading the business side of things I can totally see how he needed to have those skills crafted and honed and he had to develop those relationships and those interpersonal skills if they wanted to succeed but I also think people you know tend to forget that it was probably just as important for Roy to be a sort of perfectionist because while it might've been Walt Disney productions, it was still Disney and Disney's still Roy's name. His name is on the door as well in a lot of ways. So he was looking out for the company for his name, but he still at times had to be able to be a good people person. Yeah. It it sounds like Roy excelled in some of the soft skills and yeah. which, again it's so contradictory to what we i think sometimes envision as this you know the numbers don't lie there is a, there is always an answer and the numbers are sort of hard and fast and and he really was more of a people person that cared about not just the work product but the well-being the attitude the atmosphere in and around his employees we often hear about like modern day uh CEOs, modern day founders, Steve Jobs, people like that, that might not have those interpersonal skills, kind of like Walt did. I don't think to that extent, Walt wasn't like that, you know, sort of a crazy person, but a lot of people are ruthless when they're going after their, these sorts of big ambitious dreams. And when you do hear those stories about 
Roy being a good guy, about kind of being like this father figure at the at the company. It's good to hear, and it and it makes sense. And at the same time, it also makes sense that people worked at that company for decades and decades and decades, and it had to have been because the leadership, not just of Walt but of Roy, was so welcoming. And this is not meant to be a shameless plug, although I guess it really is. You know, in my my first Disney interviews book, Uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> Just follow me around the room for a second. Uh-huh. The reason why I chose the people that I did was because all of them worked for and with Walt, other than Dave Smith, who was there to to preserve the legacy of Walt. And you'll see there's this common thread in all those conversations about how people felt about Walt. There was a, a reverence and there was a respect for Walt and not just the opportunities that he gave them, but the way he did business and the way he was able to get the best performance out of all of them too. But you could also sort of get some of those hints like, yeah, Walt was a tough guy. And like you said, Steve Jobs, and you sort of get that same feeling, you know, tough guys, but it's worth it because of what we were able to create and deliver when it was all over. You know, we're going to talk about it a lot, but they need that partnership. They need that yin and that yang, that creativity in that business. And um, it looked like Roy might have had a little bit more uh, personal stuff than than we realized, which is it's cool to hear. It's really cool to hear. I only wish that there was more to see and hear from Roy, because if you do searches, there's there's not a lot. Um, There is not a lot. And we'll talk about Roy's decision sort of be very much in the background. But even in terms of recorded conversations and interviews there's very very little yes there's the dedication speech and you'll find a little bit from you know when they first came to orlando but but not really much else um but next on my list is that it almost sort of goes to the same thing we sort of have this idea maybe misconception that walt was purely the idea man and, and Roy was yeah. purely the financial guy. And I think Roy doesn't necessarily get credit for some of these creative decisions that maybe maybe the, the impetus was financial, but they ended up being creative decisions that ended up being monumental for the company because TV was Roy's mm-hmm. idea. And one of the issues that Roy had with things like Disneyland was the same thing that Roy had from the very beginning, which was money. It's great idea, Walt. How are we going to pay for it? And this is where Roy sort of came with this idea of what if we leverage TV and start create our own programming and use this short form, you know, 15, 20 minute, half hour TV program to start promoting Disneyland and was able to convince ABC, which Disney would eventually buy because everything comes full circle, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to, you know, a year before the park opening to start airing these Walt Disney's Disneyland. Again, it's Walt first, right? Walt's name is there first. And, you know, help pay for this park and this idea of, of, of going onto TV and leveraging sponsorships in order to make up the difference of what the Disney company itself could not pay for was both brilliant and I think very, very creative. Forget about making up the difference of what they needed. This 
blew the doors off the bank accounts. I mean, this they opened up extra vaults at Bank of America for what the TV specials and Disneyland on ABC did. I mean, Davy Crockett was took over the country, made tens of millions of dollars, got people excited about Disneyland, helped ABC come back from basically the brink of financial ruin for what that was, but at the same time created characters that they could test on the small screen that became integral parts of the Disney parks, not just the Disneyland, but around the world for years and years to come. And it all started with TV and without Roy just coming up with the idea of, hey, maybe we try this and then having the creatives run with it, that wouldn't have existed. So many things came from that and the TV and Disneyland special on ABC was so, so important. Well, and and this actually dovetails nicely into what's next on my list because I think, Connor, I think so many people think that that Walt was not just the figurehead on TV and and the and the man walking around the parks and and the creative genius behind it, but Roy's impact and influence on the company was actually a lot more. And believe it or not, um, you know, Roy to a certain degree ran the company. And Mm -hmm. Walt even admitted, because in 1966, not long before he passed on, Roy and Walt and other executives um, were were at this luncheon with Billy Dial, who was the chairman of the First National Bank of Orlando and and someone who helped really sort of make the Florida Project come to light, asked Walt what would happen to the Florida Project if he got hit by a truck after lunch. Talk about taking the turn in the conversation in a very negative direction. Walt said, and I quote, absolutely nothing. My brother Roy runs this company. I just piddle around. And it said that, you know, everybody sort of laughed and nobody sort of really, you know, put any weight to what they thought was a joke because they just thought that Roy was always just the person in the background that was taking orders from Walt. Okay, this is what I want to do. You need to go figure out how to do it. And Roy even said, and a quote by Roy is, all I've been trying to do is help Walt with what he was trying to do. And I think there's, there's, it's really important to talk not just about his financial genius, his humanity, but just how much he was involved in the decision-making and the direction of the company too. You know, Walt could easily say nothing would happen. My brother, Roy, he runs the company and they all laugh and have a good time. And Roy probably laughed, but at the same time, he was probably sweating bullets. Like, please, please, please (laughs) do not leave. I do not know what is going on. It's very easy to say that he is the guy that just took the orders from Walt because Walt was always in the public eye, whether it was in the parks, on TV, in interviews, whatever it was, it was Walt. But I think what really happened was Walt probably came with a lot of orders to Roy. The only difference was Roy decided which orders he was going to follow, which orders were going to be important and which orders were going to help the company and not, you know, steered in the wrong direction. And I think that sort of business savviness that that Roy had, knowing when, okay, this is an idea we have to pursue, knowing when, okay, we could just have to, you know, pretend Walt didn't say that and hopefully he forgets about it. And at the same time, doing all the other tedious stuff that that Walt didn't want to do. You know, Walt 
step down from being, I think it was when he was chairman to just have, or, or even president to just have Roy run the entire company because he wanted to focus on creative aspects of it. Roy was doing every other aspect of what it takes to run a big company, you know, accounting, staffing, all sorts of those little things that you don't think about when you think about the Disney company. You just think about movies and parks and the fun stuff. You don't think about the little things it takes to run a company every single day. Well, Roy was also in charge of all that. And I think he also made fiscal decisions that needed to be made, but I think also with a little sense of humanity too. So for example, on one hand, when he decides, when the company decides to buy back from ABC their initial interest in Disneyland, which was 34%, he paid ABC 15 times their original half a million dollar investment so that they could take control back of Walt Disney Productions and do the things that he knew his brother Walt would want to do. On the other side of the coin, he also would, put, I don't want to say it overspent, but he would also spend money where he needed to. So when Disney was buying property here in Florida from 200 to 2,000 and everywhere in between an acre, there were some people who were holdouts. Like, and it almost sounds like a fanciful story. Like there's the little old lady who wasn't going to give up her home. And they said, look, you know, they, they said that she thought or could get or deserved, you know, $5,000 for the property. And Roy's like, look, she's a little old lady all by herself. Just give her $12,000. And they did. And she, he, Roy was quoted as saying, it's nice when you can when you can give someone something in their old age. It really meant something to her. So I, I love, again, it goes back to what we were saying about the employees. I love the fact that there was a lot of humanity in even the decisions he was making as well. He's a good guy, you know, and, and that's what it comes back to. I also think at the same time, Roy gets painted as this guy who was the budget man who, who did, you know, pull back on things who did slash budgets or whatever say, Oh no, we can't do that. That's, that's too much. Listen today as Disney fans, we know of the dreaded budget cuts. We know something's always going to get cut. It's always going to get changed. But Roy gets painted as the guy who was doing that thing where I think he needs to be painted as the guy who is also approving all these other ones. I mean, he he got the money for Disneyland. He got the money to buy twice the size of the island of Manhattan's worth of land in Orlando. That's not like normal, sensible <laughs> purchases that a CEO of a major company would make but he was willing to do it and he was willing to spend if the ideas made sense. That's what it comes down to. It doesn't come down to, he just didn't want to do it. He just thought it was going to waste of money. No, he's willing to spend money. He's willing to spend a lot of money and go a lot over budget. If he believes in the ideas, just as much as if his brother believes in the ideas as well. And it's a, a perfect sort of segue to what's next on my list because it, look it goes back to what we said at the beginning about his love and support for his brother not just because they were siblings but even early on when Walt was like making movies at home you know Roy was there to you know hold the camera hold the tripod be the bookkeeper wash animation cells and 
as time went on, and I sort of said, you know, you know, what's in a name? We we think about the the naming of Walt Disney World, and have all heard iterations of of the paraphrase story of of Roy saying, no, no, this is, this is going to be Walt Disney World. And I think it's important to note that this was not this was not a marketing ploy by Roy. This was not a PR move that somebody said, you know, we need to do this because this is something that Roy did throughout his life when. It was the Disney Brothers studio. Roy is the one who proposed the the name change to calling it the Walt Disney Studio. He wanted this to be about the press. That's why I said sort of the the heroically putting Walt in center stage and having the spotlight on him. And it was right after, like within a week after Walt passed, that Roy said to the executives, like, look, I'm not going to retire. We're going to finish this park. We're going to do it the way Walt wanted. And don't you ever forget it. I want you to do it just exactly the way you're going to do it when Walt was here. And one of the initial decisions that he had to make in in furtherance of that was calling it Walt Disney World. And yes, it did make sense maybe from a marketing perspective, but a story goes that there was a, a meeting early on that that an executive was referring to it as Disney World and Roy was incensed and like look I'm not going to say it again like this is going to be called Walt Disney World not Disney World not Disneyland East not anything else Walt Disney World and I think it meant something to him because of of what it meant to his brother and I think that really again it speaks volumes about Roy the man, the brother, not Roy, the businessman. That's what it comes back to. It comes back to respect and it comes back to family. This was a decision that he believed was important to honor his brother's legacy. And I think it's so awesome that we do pass under the gates and it says, welcome to Walt Disney World. And we pass under those gates and refer to it because Roy made that decision just based on family, just based on a love for his brother. And it's so important. And I love that he did that. And I love that it's separated as well from Disneyland, from every other thing around the world. It's Walt Disney World. A funny story is, so I worked, uh, I was a cast member, front uh, front desk cast member at Yacht and Beach Club, and then the Seven Doors Mine Train. And we got to do uh, a backstage tour of the Haunted Mansion. Right. So we get there early one day. We walk the track. Our two ghost hosts are 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 taking us around. Right. And they're two cast members and they're telling us all these stories. And we go around back to backstage where the library scene is, where all the busts follow you. And they say, you know, when they were building Haunted Mansion, they just said, let's build two of everything so that they would build the Disneyland version and the Walt Disney World version at the same time. They would build two of everything, and then they would label each as such. What's interesting is when you go back there, and this is the Walt Disney World version, it's all plywood that's keeping everything up, and it's spray-painted across the, the, the plywood in stencil form, Disney World. So each thing was labeled Disneyland, Disney World. So that was all being worked on, before Roy ever made this decision. But even behind the scenes there, you can still see the marks of 
Disney World. Disney World, the previous decision before Walt, uh, before Roy decided, no, we're going to honor Walt's legacy. I just always think that's so cool. I love that story. I love that that unknown fact. Yes, and everybody who's listening is like me, very, very jealous of the fact that you got <laughs> that backstage. But it actually goes to what's next, number six on my list in terms of this idea of continuing Walt's vision exactly as Walt's vision was. And, you know, when you think of having to step in the shoes of Walt Disney and where the company was, where this, you know, this plane was in flight in terms, obviously, of of, of building Walt Disney World. And you could imagine all of these other people coming to Roy, taking advantage of the fact that he's stepping into these monstrous shoes, which he had never been in before, and saying, well, this is the way Walt was going to do it. What we really should do is this. The temptation would be there to listen to the people who have been working with Walt the entire time. Roy said no. So at one point, some of the executives tried to convince Roy to move Walt Disney World. They wanted Walt to move Walt Disney World down to the intersection of I-4 and 192 because those roads what they were ever at at that time <laughs> were already in place and it would have, and there was a lot more infrastructure there. It would have eliminated an incredible amount of time and expense in developing the roads, developing the canals. We know things like that, that Joe Fowler and, and Potter had to do in terms of the, the waterways and the canal systems here. But Walt had this idea, this plan and this design on paper and, and in his mind about where, this property would be and Walt again he told the executives he told the finance guys like look we're continuing with Walt's plan stop wasting my time on these meetings because nothing is I am not going to like change from Walt what what Walt had in place and I give him an incredible amount of credit for they're not even sticking to his guns to sticking to Walt's guns and not listening or, or sort of falling to the temptation or the pressure that he probably got from so many different directions. Yeah. But I mean, if we moved it to I four and one ninety two, think of all the t-shirt shops we would have all the knockoff park ticket shops, maybe some twisty treats, twisty treats are good there. Hey, yeah. From, off, from what I've been, from what I've been told. Uh, yeah. You've never been to twisty treat? No, I actually have okay. friends who are hounding me to go. So, go. okay. Well, that's totally, totally fine. But I think, you know, as someone who, who has done a lot of driving around this area. And I don't know what 192 or or that area looked like back in the day. When I first hear that story, it, it seems like moving that down just goes completely against why Walt wanted so much land in the first place. Because with Disneyland, Harbor Boulevard, you know, became this sort of third party conglomerate, you know, all these other little things opening up. And Walt didn't like the fact that he couldn't control those areas leading up to his park. And I think if that were the case and they moved it down to that area in Orlando, that probably would have happened again. I mean, there's a lot of sections in that part where they could have come. They obviously would have bought all the land and stuff, but it definitely seems like it just goes so against what Vault wanted with the Florida project. And I think it was so sensible and so smart for Roy to stick to his guns there and say, no, we're not doing this. This is the plan and we're sticking to it. 
and it's as if you sort of can, are, are sort of reading my mind or reading my notes because the sticking to the plan and sticking to the way things have been done was not just in terms of the execution of Walt's idea, but really the execution of Walt's philosophy. And it really also deals with, with the philosophy of team and teamwork. And if you look at Walt's, one of Walt's windows on Main Street USA at the end, you know, Walt Disney is, you know, from the graduate school of master planning and design. That's what he was. You've, you've heard us talk about the bumblebee story. He's the bumblebee that goes around and pollinates. He believed in surrounding himself with the people who were the very best of what they did. And that's exactly what Roy did. Um, Roy knew he did not have the experience and the talents and many other things. He surrounded himself with the people who could execute on Walt's vision, right? Dick Irvine came from WED, who helped to create Disneyland. Joe Fowler and Joe Potter, again, who had that military background in order to make this mucky, murky swampland into what it is today. Roy concentrated on what, you know, you do what you're uniquely qualified to do. He worked on the finance and the costs and, and labor and all those different issues and delegated elsewhere to others. And and years ago, I had a chance, I spoke to, um, I interviewed Jack Lindquist, um, and he talked about how, you know, without Roy, there was absolutely no way that this would have happened. Uh, it would have, it, it, it took a Disney to create it. And Roy had that same philosophy that Walt did of bringing in people like Don Tatum and, and card Walker to help with some of the day-to-day management and to oversee, you know, again, Roy was that same way, a little bit of that bumblebee. Yeah. And I think teamwork makes the dream work. That's the best way to describe poster. Like yeah, I think someone already. Something. Yeah, I think someone already has it trademarked. Uh, I think a big uh, mouse run corp- corporation has that trademark, probably. But yeah, I'll put it on a poster. I don't care. Uh, teamwork makes the dream work, and you can go all the way back. And yes, Walt Disney, his name was on everything, but he believed that too. You know, the nine old men—they were so responsible for so many things, both in the films and a lot of them had big responsibilities in the parks as well. Mary Blair. Other people like this, they're the reasons why the company was so successful. Roy saw that, he understood that, and when Walt unfortunately passed away, he stuck with that. And he kept it going, and he knew the only way Walt Disney World, again, Walt Disney World, was only going to get completed is if the right people were doing their jobs the right way. Do your job. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to all come together. And he was right about it. So next on my list is, is might sound a little strange, but really go with me here. Because as I was thinking about this list and things that we don't know or didn't know about Roy Disney, something I often try and think of just the practical aspects of things. Like how does this thing get made? How does all these, how do these things come together? And it made me start thinking about practically, you know, Roy and these executives coming out here. And, you know, Orlando wasn't Orlando before Walt Disney World. It looked like a very, very different place. And if you look back on on maps from the 60s, there's not a lot going on here. There was not a lot at that intersection of 192 and I-4. And it got me to thinking, where did Roy live? 
Like, I wanted to know where Roy lived while he was here. I know a lot of people we talked recently um, to um, uh, Tom Nabby, and they talked about, you know, buying a, this little piece of lakeside property up in, in Windermere, which is just north of Magic Kingdom and has grown to, uh, you know, the sort of there's a there's a very high end section of Windermere where a lot of executives and celebrities and stuff lives. And I'm like, well, you'll figure that's got to be where Roy lived. And I did some some searching around. And and initially, when Roy and the executives came out here, they stayed at slash lived in the Hilton in South, which was right near I Drive. And Oof. in order to <laughs> listen, you can imagine what the Hilton Inn probably looked like in the late 60s. Just do the math in your head. But it wasn't just Roy and the executives, but there's managers and there's staff who have to come in to get ready to open the resort. And there's nothing else here. There's not a lot of other places to live and stay. So what does Disney do? They take over management of the entire hotel. They're like, well, <laughs> just give us the hotel. We're going to run it. We're going to train our managers and staff here, the ones who are going to be working at the Polynesian and the Contemporary. We're going to use it as housing for management and staff. Yes, we'll still, there's still other regular paying guests here as well. But then I wanted to know, like, where did they go next? Like, did he go to the Windermere area? And in fact, where he and some other executives went was to an area known as Bay Hill. And there's this wonderful little area near the Dr. Phillips section as you start going over towards Universal and, and I Drive called Bay Hill. And in 1968, um, one of the many subsidiary corporations that they formed was called, and I love this name. Gosh, this is so smart. It was called Recreacres, which oh. helped them find some of these properties. And eventually it became the Walt Disney World Hospitality Recreation Corporation. And they bought five different Bay Hill houses, which were um, right near. And it's Bay Hill, and these golf courses are still there. This way, he could be close to Walt Disney World without sort of being right on top of it. And they allocated these for Disney executives. Uh, Roy and Joe lived next to each other on this little cul-de-sac, and and they were. If you look today, they're very, very modest, identical. Listen, get, if you if you want to know what being an executive was like, two bedroom, two bath houses that were about, and these were the big ones, fourteen hundred ninety square feet. So hey, that's that's good living, right there. <laughs> right. So Roy and Edna lived next to Joe and Marguerite Fowler. They were at eighty nine twenty two Tibet Bay Drive. And Joe was living at 8920. Supposedly at that time, they actually shared a driveway and they wanted to be next to each other so they could get together, stand in the driveway and talk about things. They would have backyard barbecues and, and all these kind of things. Uh, I, again, I sort of went down the rabbit hole as deep as I finally could. Uh, these were supposedly sold for like $39,000 mm. at the time. The estimated value right now is $1.2 million. Yeah, and that's why uh, earlier today, Lou was driving around in that neighborhood. And, well, it's, it's suffice to say he has a restraining order out now. He got a little too close <laughs> to those houses. But that's true. Those houses are in such a cool area because Bay Hill, for any golfers that who who know that out there, 
Arnold Palmer's tournament. That's the Arnold Palmer Invitational held there every single year. Top golfers around the world, um, you know, a stone's throw from Walt Disney World. Uh, I will do a shameless plug here because I recently talked a lot about the building of Walt Disney World and the purchasing of the land uh, on my podcast. And I talked with author Aaron Goldberg, who just did a book called Buying Disney's World. It's just about buying the land. And he talks a lot about that little house that that Roy lived in and how, yeah, they would have barbecues together. And when the contract was going crazy with U.S. Steel, who was in charge of building um, the contemporary and the Polynesian, they were going to run it. Roy would like basically have meetings in his house right there after work. They'd grab a beer um, and kind of talk about all that stuff that was going on with U.S. Steel. So it's always kind of fun and it's always kind of interesting knowing that that area is still there. It still exists, but you know, so many years before, before Orlando was really anything, the CEO of the company was, was spending some time in, in a little track house there. Like, I know you can see a picture of the house and, you know, on Zillow or realtor.com and, and try and find it, but there's a little part of it. You know, we talk about, you know, where Walt walked and, and walking in Walt's footsteps and I want to see where Roy lived. Like there's a little part of me that wants to drive by the house um, when I get a chance, but I want to, I want to get to uh, number nine and then, and then the final entry on, on my list and talk specifically about that, that opening day. And more importantly, that, that dedication of, of Walt Disney world, which was a three day event, but the, the actual dedication where, where Roy got up and magic kingdom and, and talked about it was, um, October 25th, 1971. And while Roy was there, um, you know, obviously there was a lot of questions, not just about Walt Disney World, but about Walt himself. And he was asked probably more than one time, you know, why did he feel that he needed to take on what I'm sure was an overwhelming project? And he laughed. He said, I don't want to have to explain to Walt when I saw him again that the dream didn't come true. <laughs> he was afraid of what Walt up in heaven would say to him if he got up there and didn't finish that task. Um, and and there's multiple stories and, and newspaper articles that all sort of refer to the fact, you know, one thing that Roy certainly was, was consistent. He did not look for, want or, or even allow himself to receive a lot of the media attention. And, and he actually spent a great deal of his time on a boat on the Seven Seas Lagoon because he said, today's Walt's day. Like, I want them to think about and remember my brother today. This is not all about me. And even when the, the TV special, remember when we used to have great TV specials like the grand opening of Walt Disney World, which aired on, on October 29th. Roy was with his wife in the aforementioned Bay Hill house, um, you know, just, you know, crying about, um, you know, what I think it was less about look what we were able to do. I think it was more about the, these tears for the ability, the, the fact that he was able to make his brother's dream finally come true. There's so many lessons I think we can learn from him, but the kind of humility and the, and the humbleness that this man had is, is, I mean, it's almost saint-like it's insane. I mean, 
especially in today's day and age, I know for me, for one, thinking about if I was in that position, I'd be like, well, you know, I could get in front of the camera. That could be kind of cool. Oh, yeah. You want to interview me? That's fine. Time magazine. Sure. (laughs) For him to put all of that aside, the willpower and the strength and at the same time, the love he had for his brother just superseded everything, superseded any of his, you know, arrogance or anything that 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 someone could have easily delved into in that scenario. He wanted to make it about his brother. He devoted, you know, the last few years of his life to completing his younger brother's project just for his brother. Well, just because he was scared of seeing him in heaven, you know, when he was going to yell at him and saying, what'd you do? You didn't get a job, the job done. But there was such a regard he had for his brother. And I think that those lessons and those stories are, are really, really cool and important. And we can learn something from them as well. You know, the, the final which I think this is the first time ever in a, in a 10 list. I've actually had 10 items. Just 10. Yeah. Just ten. Well, I mean, there's going to be other things I mentioned, of course. Um, but, you know, I think it's almost, it's it's sad but befitting that, look, in order for Roy to execute on his brother's dream, he he postponed his retirement, which was imminent at the time. He sacrificed a lot. He made all these changes. Look, and and Roy was no spring chicken. I mean, he was very much, you know, an an older gentleman at the time. And when this was all over and when the park had opened, when the the dedication had been done, Roy went back to California and he never came back to Florida again. Uh, He planned on being in California just for a couple of months and then was going to get on a cruise ship with his wife to Australia and do what he wanted and, and had worked to do, which was just travel for um, for an extended period of time. Um, unfortunately, he started having some, some health issues, uh, fell into a coma on December 19th, 1971, and then passed uh, a day later at the age of 78 at St. Joseph's Medical Center in Burbank, um, where, you know, about half a, de- half a decade earlier, he was there um, at his brother's bedside. It is the same place that that Walt had passed. And I, I think it's, you know, we talk about sometimes people, when somebody passes, like, well, what are they waiting for? What were they waiting for? And I think, you know, I think Roy stayed and waited to make sure that he did what he needed to do to see, to again, selfishly out of the spotlight to make sure his brother's, vision and dream became a reality and when that work was done and when he was satisfied by what he saw and knew that it was in good hands he knew he was able to to move on and and to join his brother once again you know much like indiana jones i got one more job to do how many (laughs) one more jobs are we gonna get you know probably seven or eight i would think but in this case roy really did have one more job to do. And it's not like he said that outright, like once, once this is it, this is it for me on earth, you know? No, of course not. But there's always that divine power or call it whatever you want that I think 
keeps you here for a reason. And he was kept here for a reason to see that his family legacy continued, that he accomplished what his brother wanted, that he left the company in a, in an interesting kind of, uh, of, of point where the Florida project was, was done in the early stages and things like that. But he knew he had to accomplish that. And it might sound a little weird, but I almost like thinking of it like he gave everything he had to that project. That's how it was able to be accomplished. That's probably the only way it was able to be accomplished. And because of that, that's was his final legacy. The final thing that he did while he was here on earth. And, and, and that's exactly how I want to sort of tie all this up because we start off talking about how little there is in terms of of presence in the parks or or recognition of but there is the legacy of Roy that lives on and i wanted to just point out a couple of the ways that he is is being honored and where you can find Roy Disney in the parks um first and foremost is obviously one of the Walt Disney World Railroad locomotives um is named after Roy Disney it's it's a 440 uh, that was built in 1916 and almost like almost appropriately, it was the only one that was not in service the day the park opened in on October first. Um, mm. it, it had it had some issues and wasn't ready until December first. And it was almost like I need wow. to make sure all the other trains are working and let them get their recognition before I sort of slide in just a couple of months later. We mentioned the sharing the magic statue. Uh, designed by Blaine Gibson. I actually did a podcast uh, about this and Blaine Gibson, which I will reference in the show notes. I don't remember specifically, but we talk about the very deliberate design of the of not just the bench and and, and where it is, but of Roy and the way he is sitting. That you know, Roy is sitting back, waiting for Minnie to come to him, and and sort of holds her hand like he's supporting it the same way that he supported Walt as well. Um, Did you know, did you know originally that the statue was located inside of the fence in town square and Hmm. so many guests kept on jumping over the fence to take a picture in that spot that they felt was reserved for them. And which it wasn't, the idea was that Minnie was close to, to Roy and, but you know, guess them. I felt well. There's a space for me to go and sit, and that's why they decided to move it out. And I think going full circle to what we said earlier, it goes back to sort of that Roy being approachable. Like you can't go and take a, a picture next to Walt, and I don't think that's by design. But I think there is something about that that kind old man that you just want to sit down. Like I'm getting choked up. You want to sit down and sort of put your arm around. Like uh, maybe he tells a Forrest Gump tale, you know, <laughs> life is like a box of chocolates, something like that. I don't know, but I totally get it. Um, there is, and I believe the building is still called uh, back when the MGM studios was the MGM studios. There is, yeah. um, there was a, a division of the company called Disney ideas that made uh, video products and um, uh, videos you'd see like in the queues and, and DVDs. And those offices were called the Roy O. Disney Production Center, or the old MGM Studios. 
There's also something over at, um, it, it's called Red Cat. It's called the Roy and Edna Disney Cal Arts Theater, where there are a lot of uh, on-campus performances, and it's this, supposedly it's, it's this big, gorgeous, um, beautiful theater um, located inside the Walt Disney Concert Hall as well. Um, and as you and <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll save this one for you because there actually was a portrayal of Roy. Oh Disney. yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, which I have not seen, so I can't even speak to it. But I almost want—I'm mentioning it almost more because of if you think who should portray Roy Disney, Roy O Disney, what's the first name that comes to mind? Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Was that Napoleon Dynamite or was that Nicolas Cage doing a Napoleon Dynamite? I only have the one thing, so it gets filtered through. It I just have the like, one voice. It sounded like Roy Disney has nunchuck skills and bow hunting skills, and he's in Alaska hunting wolverines, if you've ever seen He him. loves He loves ligers. His best friend's named Pedro. Right. Yeah, it's it's all sorts of things. Look, ligers are bred for both skills and magic. So And magic. <laughs> so, yeah, in um, well, go ahead. Tell tell the film. So the film is called Walt Before Mickey. And like the name suggests, it follows Walt through his early childhood up until he creates Mickey Mouse. So you get a lot of Walt's struggles and you get a lot of the founding of the companies and the founding of various Walt companies that 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 Walt started. Um, and there's other characters in it, one being Roy Disney, who was uh, portrayed by John Heater, the aforementioned Napoleon Dynamite, um, also of Blades of Glory fame, all sort those sorts of things. I will say about that film, you can learn some things. The acting didn't win any awards, didn't win any awards, but it is still like any Disney fan, of course, whether you're listening to this podcast, um, I think you would still enjoy it. I, I watch it on Amazon. It might still be on there, but um, yeah, it's great that Napoleon Dynamite portrays Roy Disney. Nice. And look, the, the, the point of this was to share 10, and I think hopefully we crammed a few more things in there about Roy that you, you might not have known. If you want to learn more and hear some of the stories about Roy, again, both businessman and, and personal, I would recommend two books. Uh, one is Building a Company, Roy O. Disney and the Creation of an Entertainment Empire by Bob Thomas, and the Neil Gabler book, Walt Disney, the Triumph of the, of the American Imagination. Um, both talk extensively about Roy, um, but, you know, sort of coming full circle, Connor, Walt was not just the person who you know, was the, the dreamer and the doer. I think Roy really is the one who he really did. He, he was, he was the doer of Walt's dreams. He was the one who made Walt's dreams come true, not just for him, but really for generations of, of fan fans around the world. And, you know, Walt was a bit of a dreamer and Roy was a little bit more of the realist, but I think that there was a lot of, of dreamer, in Roy too. He just understood the budget a little bit better than, than Walt might've. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, that great Walt quote that say, says, you know, we can do everything in our power to create these things, but it's going to take people to make the dream come true. And it's, and it's true. And it's, he wasn't saying that just about 
the everyday cast member, which they're the ones that create the magic for sure. He was saying that about everyone other than himself, everyone else in the company from the top to the bottom. It takes people to create the magic and Roy, his brother, who was even at a higher position in the company than Walt was, uh, he was talking about him as well. It takes people to make the magic and Walt Disney world sure would not be here without Roy Disney. And we need to always, always, always remember that and thank him for that, for what he's created for us. And next time you're in Walt Disney world or any, you know, Disney park, um, take a minute. It's not hard to find right by town square. And, you know, we, I think we take a second and we we look at the statue of of Walt and Mickey, or we we take a sort of a, a moment of reverence to look at one of Walt's windows. Take a look at Royal Disney's window on Main Street, USA, which says, you know, if we can dream it, we can do it. And I think it's it's incredibly appropriate who made the the is is the doer of of that part of it. And and I really do hope, Connor, that. Not only this show brings attention to Roy, but I would love to see more of that in the parks. Um, I'd love to see Roy's story, Roy's legacy be more than just you know a passing name on a train or even the statue. Um, you know, I, I just for 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 Roy's sake, a man who didn't want some of the spotlight, I hope some of the spotlight gets turned on Roy a little bit more. Now, do you think he'd be happy with the John Heater casting or do you think there's someone else we could put in there for him? I think this might be a question to post in the clubhouse on yeah. Facebook. Who do you think? We've So we've seen we've seen Walt portrayed excellently, by the way, um, by, by Tom Hanks. Uh, who would you like to see be Roy? I'll post that question there. Uh, you could also call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. Let me know who you think should portray Roy O. Disney, if there ever was a portrayal on big or small screen. You can do your John Hader impression. I'd appreciate it if probably that, that you didn't. Uh, and also, please go and check out all of the amazing stuff that Connor does. And Connor, tell him where you can find not just your podcast, but your blog and your social and your book. That's right. I do have a book. You can head to WDWOpinion.com to check out all of that stuff. Um, I believe the week that this episode drops, I'll also be dropping an episode all about my experience using Disney Genie Plus in the parks in Magic Kingdom. That was a ton of fun. So definitely want to check out that podcast episode. That'll be episode 121. Again, you can head to wdwopinion.com to check it out or search WDW Opinion wherever you get your podcasts. And I do have a book about working at Walt Disney World. Like I said, I worked front desk at the Yacht and Beach Club Resort and then also in the mine where a million diamonds shine, Seven Horse Mine Train. That book is called From Yacht Club to Diamond Mind. You can go to wdwopinion.com to learn more about it or just search that Yacht Club to Diamond Mine in Amazon and you can get that book as well. I'll post links to all of that in the show notes. Connor Brown, my friend, you too are a dreamer and a doer, among other things. Uh, thank you so much for uh, helping to preserve and bring to light 
the legacy of one Roy O. Disney. Thank you very much for having me. It was an honor, and I'm so glad we got to talk about this awesome, awesome individual. You mean Roy and not John Hayden. Yes, right, right, right. Well, well, yeah. I'm glad we got to talk about both of them today. Now, if you want to do a 10 Things About John Heater episode, I can, we can talk about that too. It's time for our Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see a way you pay attention to the details which you see, hear, remember. If you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. And this week's trivia contest is once again brought to you by you. And I mean that because as part of the WW Radio Nation family, you literally help bring every episode of WW Radio to life, every live broadcast from the parks, the contests and giveaways. They're all thanks to, because of, by and for you. You can find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar a month and get cool exclusive rewards every month like scavenger hunts, group video calls, we have a private Facebook group, shirts, stickers, monthly care packages, and much, much more. You can find out more and join the nation by going to www.radio.com support. Now, before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I brought you over to Tomorrowland in Magic Kingdom, specifically to Buzz Lightyear's Space Ranger Spin, and asked you to tell me what's the lowest ranking you can get on the attraction. Now, I know we're all trying to get to level 7 Galactic Hero, 999,999 points. Yes, it can be done. It's easier than you think. I've actually done this a couple of times on live videos. If you go back into live video archives, you can see and find out how. But last week, I wanted to know what's the lowest ranking you can get on the attraction. Now, you go from Galactic Hero to Cosmic Commando, Space Ace, Planetary Pilot, Ranger First Class, Space Scout, and if you score between zero and a thousand points, you are a space cadet. Did you know actually space cadet, the phrase space cadet, came from a science fiction novel back in the late 40s and inspired the wildly popular Tom Corbett space cadet show back in the 50s? Although for a long time, and I think still is a euphemism used by people, a space cadet is somebody who sort of like spaces out, isn't quite all there. Anyway, that doesn't matter. That's not what I was asking. What I really was asking was what was the lowest ranking. It is, of course, Space Cadet. I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and last week you were once again playing for a WW Radio pin, keychain, and mystery prize. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Ron Bryant. So, Ron, congratulations. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So we're going to stick this week with Roy Disney, and in fact, the Disney family as a whole, because you know Walt, you know Roy, but did you know that Walt had another or other sibling or siblings as well, in addition to Roy O? So this week, all you have to do is name Walt Disney's brother, brothers, and or sisters. I'm trying not to give too much away. Name Walt Disney's brothers and sisters, and again, you're playing for a prize package that includes the pin and keychain, which you can only get by winning a trivia contest, as well as a mystery prize. You have until Sunday, October 31st, ooh, spooky, I love Halloween, at 11.59 p.m. Eastern, even spookier, to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, use the form there. 
And also make sure you continue to follow me on Instagram at Lou Mangiello for another non-trivia related giveaway there coming soon. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I'd love to know your thoughts about Royo Disney, his importance to the company, his presence in the parks. Come be part of the community and conversation by joining the WW Radio Clubhouse on Facebook at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. You can also connect with me on social. I am at Lou Mangiello on all social. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming episode of the show, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com. In addition to the podcast, don't forget to join me this and every Wednesday night for WW Radio Live on Facebook. Thank you again to Jeffrey Epstein from D23 who joined me last week. If you missed the episode, you can find a replay on the www.radio.com website. This week, I'm coming home. I'm going to be live from the boathouse Wednesday, October 27th. Again, 7.30 p.m. Eastern at WW Radio Live. Com. And speaking of events, and you can find out about all the upcoming events we have planned at www.radio.com slash events. This Saturday, I have been counting down to this for a long time. The Swan and Dolphin Food and Wine Classic is back. I will be there on Saturday night from 5.30 to 9 p.m. If you are a foodie or plan to be one, I cannot recommend this event highly enough. Just go to Swan Dolphin Food and Wine Classic to get your ticket. By the way, did I mention one ticket, unlimited food and beverages? Let that sink in. I'll also have information about our next WW Radio Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World coming soon. And also go to www.radio.com slash cruise to find out how you can join us on our Marvel Day at Sea, our four-night inaugural on the Disney Wish, our very merry time cruise December 5th, also on the Disney Wish, or in 2023, our Disney Fantasy eight-night Bermuda and Bahamian cruise with an overnight in Bermuda again www.radio.com slash cruise for more information and to get a free no obligation quote. Also, I'll be at the House of Mouse Expo November 27th and 28th at the Embassy Suite in the Hilton Orlando Lake Buena Vista just a few minutes from Walt Disney World. It's going to combine all the magical properties of Disney, Pixar, Star Wars, and Marvel under one roof for an ultimate family-friendly event. I'll be live from that event and have a table there. You can also go to www.radio.com slash House of Mouse to find out more and get your ticket. We're also now just a few weeks away from my Momentum Weekend Workshop in Walt Disney World. If you are an entrepreneur, solopreneur, own a business, or if you're a content creator and sort of want to take your business and your brand to the next level, you can join me, a select group of speakers, and 50 other entrepreneurs for a two-day event, November 13th and 14th in Walt Disney World. It is a two-day interactive workshop. I'm going to be sharing some practical and tactical strategies inspired by the Disney parks, while others are going to share lessons, tools, and resources, and how to apply them to your life and business. And I don't think I've even mentioned, did you also know you get a huge 150-page workbook full of information, activities, exercises to do in the room and at home. It is a great opportunity to learn, network, share, and grow. This is our fifth year, and I cannot wait. There are now only three seats remaining for the weekend workshop and two spots remaining for our optional Monday Mastermind, which is limited to just 10 people. You can find out more by visiting lumangelo.com and clicking on Momentum and still save $100 off each of your weekend workshop and Mastermind Day tickets. Speaking of thanks, I want to give huge thanks again to some of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation family. I'm incredibly grateful for your love, friendship, support, and help, and I love being able to give back to you each and every month. I want to thank some new and longtime members, including Tigger Wannabe. Gosh, I've known you for ages. Eric Siegel and Tara Weaver-Hawley. 
to find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar a month, as well as our Dream Team Project, which benefits the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America, you can go to www.radio.com support. Thanks, as always, to my official and recommended travel provider, Mouse Fan Travel, for all your vacation planning needs, whether you're going to Disney World, Land, Cruise Line, Aulani, or anywhere on the planet. They can give you not only the best possible prices, all available discounts, but really, most importantly, an incredible level of personal service. And that is our hallmark. It's why I've been using them for more than 15 years and I've been partnering and recommending them for almost as long. You can find out more and get a free no obligation quote by visiting mousefantravel.com. And as always, my friends, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. How can you do that? Share a link to this or your favorite episode on social. Tag me at Lou Mangiello so I'm sure that I'm seeing it. And if you can, take just a couple of seconds to rate and review the podcast over an Apple podcast. It is incredibly helpful. I'd be very, very grateful. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Ellie from the United States, who says it's a fun, informative podcast as Lou brings passion and enjoyment on all things Disney, making the time between trips more endurable. His care for his listeners shines through, and he's a friend you're waiting to meet. Keep it up, Lou. Ellie, I cannot wait to meet you as well. Finally, most importantly, thank you, thank you, thank you. I... I am grateful every single day for the gift and the ability to do what I do and share it with you and for your time, which I know is your most valuable commodity. I hope the show has put a smile on your face, has made your day happier, maybe inspired you to be better, and to always, always choose the good, to find the good in everything that you do and everyone that you encounter, and to be the good and let that positivity carry forward. It is like an incredibly wonderful ripple effect that you can have on others. I hope that this truly is your best week ever. I hope to see you on a live show this Wednesday night and in the conversations in the clubhouse. So until next time, I love you. I appreciate you. See ya. Hi, this is Sam calling just outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I just finished both of the Star Wars Top 10 Moments episodes, and I couldn't help but think about my favorite um, Star Wars moment, and it just makes me laugh every time. Um, my husband and I, uh, my now husband, um, are really big Star Wars fans, and when we first got together, I had seen, you know, most of the movies. I remember seeing The Phantom Menace in theaters with my um, my mom and dad and my sister when I was a kid, and I loved A New Hope, but never really saw the other movies in full, in order, and knew everything about it. So um, he insisted that we have a Star Wars marathon, and we watched it in our apartment from the crack of dawn until late at night. It took us about 14 or so hours. Uh, we had some friends stop by here and there and watch some and then leave to go to work, and it ended up being one of the most fun days and um we still you know we can't do all of the movies now but this was only when the six were out obviously so um we've tried to make it a point to do maybe half and half if we can and it's so much fun and um just one of those lay on the couch days with your snacks and your favorite people so um thanks so much for all your content we love you Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou. This is Kristen Stevens of Indianapolis, Indiana. I was just calling. Um, first-time uh, caller, but long-time listener of WDW Radio. 
And I just want to say I just returned from uh, Disneyland. I have not been there for six years. I've been to Disney World in five years, so it was really awesome to get to go again. And um, I wanted to say how much I really enjoyed Avengers Campus. Uh, that was probably my my favorite area, even over Star Wars Land. <laughs> I really enjoyed uh, going to um, the um, Tim's Test Kitchen and having the Pimini. Uh, I'm gluten-free, so they had a gluten-free uh, sandwich with the arugula salad that was really good. And the absolute best treat that I had there was actually at uh, Smoke Jumpers next to Soren Around the World in BCA. Um, I had these uh, these gluten-free chili cheese fries with uh, impossible meat. It was just really, really good. Um, but I uh, just really enjoyed my trip, and Avengers Campus was the highlight. And, of course, Oogie Boogie Bash was just spectacular. Um, thank you. Have a great one. Thank you.